Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Over the weekend, I watched a lot of junior sports, AFL and netball, and it's pretty clear which kids love the chance to be the hero and kick the goal on the siren versus those who feel the weight of expectations and they send the ball out of bounds. I'm the second kid, the one worrying about letting everyone down instead of being excited by the prospect of winning the game for the whole team and being a hero. And as I've grown up and gone into the corporate world, I find that dynamic between confident glory hunters and self-conscious team players still exists. My guest today is a sporting hero who knows all about teams and winning. Belinda Clark has an Order of Australia for her achievements as an elite cricketer and has been inducted into every possible Hall of Fame. She captained Australia from 1994 to 2005 with a win ratio of 80% and was the first player of any sex to score a double century in a one-day international match. Belinda was also CEO of Women's Cricket Australia, Executive General Manager of Community Cricket Australia, and today she's the founder of The Leadership Playground. In this episode, I want to discuss self-belief and how to tap into it, foster it in others, and specifically how to pass it on. Belinda, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. How would you describe your transition from a career on the field to one on the corporate side of sport? Well, I was lucky that whilst I was playing cricket, I was working in the sport. So I'd never felt like I went through too big a transition. I felt like I was gathering skills off the field and on the field uh, simultaneously. And then when I finished playing and I was just working, I just felt relief that I didn't have to try and juggle 3,000 things. It was just I could concentrate now on work. So I think um, the fact that I was learning in different environments probably helped me. We were talking before we kicked off about being quite young and then you're a sports star and then suddenly you're, you're a leader. At what age were you first thrust into the role as leader? I was captaining the country at 23 I played my first game for Australia when I was 21 and I didn't really have a lot of captaincy experience. I'd played under some great captains and my club captain, who uh, was a great mentor of mine, suggested that it'd be great if I captained the club team that year. And so I did. And then that same year I captained the state in New South Wales and I also ended up captaining Australia. So it was a very quick rise to a national position. And yeah, and I was just really lucky that I had some good people around me. Were you chosen because you were just a really good player? I think the team was going through quite a big transition. So the past captain was also in the team, a woman by the name of Lynn Larson, who looking back now, I just look with great admiration of how she sort of stepped away and let this young buck Mm. (laughs) just come in and shake things up a little bit. But um, 
yeah, I I felt like I had some basic skills, but that I needed I needed to learn a lot, and I I didn't overplay my hand in those first couple of years. Now I ask that because that is one of the challenges in sporting teams is often the best player gets made the captain as well. We love the best player so much that we then have to lavish them with an extra accolade of being captain, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best person for the job. So talk me through a bit about what your experience was of leading at 23. And I say that because a lot of people listening to this podcast are, you know, in the early stages of their career as a leader. Uh, I had a very simple plan, which was basically to, to stick to my strengths and just role model things, just basically do as I do. I wanted to be competitive. I trained really hard. I wanted the team to be successful, all of us be successful. And we were coming off quite a disappointing World Cup loss in 1993 at the World Cup. So I felt like I had a mandate to just simplify things and really try and just compete hard, train hard and have, have some fun, which is basically what then I continued to build upon as I gained some experience and started to understand some of the nuances that were required to do a good job. But that was good enough to start. So I would say to anyone listening, when you get the chance, just jump in and, and stick to your beliefs and, your, and be open to learning and, and just start really simple and go from there. Which brings me to the next topic that I want to explore, and that is about having that confidence to just jump in. Were you born with that confidence? In some domains, yes. I think from a sporting perspective, absolutely. I felt like I could do things. I had a high intrinsic motivation to do things with bats and balls. So I played a lot of tennis and hockey and cricket and I was just forever watching television, you know, mimicking people. I was in the backyard trying things. I was just constantly outside playing. So over time, I built up some confidence to realise that I was good at this. That then feeds the motivation to keep doing it. So I did gather some confidence from a sporting skills perspective. I would generally back myself to be able to do things. From a leadership perspective, I think some of that transfers over because you do have a certain amount of confidence about your game and you've got some solid foundations. But I think the leadership part is a lot harder to get your head around and to take the knocks because it is more nuanced and it's more difficult to be working with people that are all trying to do the same thing or trying to head in the same direction but doing it in all different ways and it took me a little while to work that out. Is there a moment in your early leadership journey that you can pinpoint where you recognise that you were young in that role and you needed to actually think about what leading actually meant? Well, yeah, because I think, um, you know, I'd, I had a very clear idea about what a sporting team should look and feel like, had played in, in a lot of them. So I understood what the end point was, but I think what I had to learn was that there was a thousand different ways to get there. I think my simplicity at the start was helpful but then it was going to be a hindrance because if you're not open to then evolving, then you just can't keep up with what's required. And sport changes a lot as well. So you cannot just roll out the same stuff year on year and expect it to work. You've got to keep evolving, whether it's your game on the field, it's your leadership, it's the way you're communicating with people, a whole range of things are just constantly moving. So I think you do in sport get used to receiving feedback, being open to try things differently and then setting things up so that you are constantly 
I suppose I just used to view it as running a series of experiments to see what would work and what, what wouldn't. And sport helps you with that mindset. Do you watch Ted Lasso? I do and I love it. <laughs> I just laugh and laugh. It's a great show to bring all this stuff to life, isn't it? Well, believe, you know, mm. that poster in the, yeah. in the change room for those that don't listen to or watch Ted Lasso. It's, you know, all about self-belief. I want to explore that a little bit more. So in the future women where we're often talking about how you build self-belief or create self-belief. So starting from the beginning, you were born with a certain degree of self-belief or is it something that you had to work on through sheer determination, as you say, by just getting better and better at the, at the individual components of what made a great leader of a sporting team? The question of confidence, which is how I would frame the self-belief thing, I think it comes from moving from I'm not sure I can do this or I can't do it to I think I might be able to, to I know I can. And that continuum in a sporting context, you know, there's quite a structure to work you through. Well, I think I might be able to do that, but I can see that person over there doing it. So therefore I, if I do these things and I trust the people around me, I will get better. And then you start to think, okay, well, I can do that. Now I can do the next bit and the next bit. So in a leadership context, I think it's exactly the same. What are the small steps that people need to take and not view any failure as, you know, a bad thing? It's just part of learning. So when you've got a bat and a ball in your hand and you go into a cricket net, you do not expect to hit every ball in the middle of the bat. That's not a realistic expectation. So you are used to making an error, adjusting, making an error, adjusting. So putting challenges in front of people that are outside their current skill set, but inside the realm of it's feasible that I could do this, that's where I think that the small steps lead to then the growing of the confidence to get yourself to the point where you've actually delivered something live, whether it's a performance on the field or it's a presentation or it's a difficult meeting. Until you've done it, it's really difficult to say, I've locked that down, I'm confident I can do it again because I know I've done it. So it's just working yourself through those steps, constantly trying to do something that you've not done before and moving yourself from I think to I know. That's how I sort of view this sort of building of self-belief or confidence to then, you know, keep going and getting the next challenge and getting better and better and better. Have you ever lost it? Because you see in sports stars, particularly cricketers, where they can have a bad run and it can be duck, 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 and, you know, you wonder whether they're ever going to get back. <laughs> and they usually do. The great ones always do. Yeah, I had a terrible temper when I was a kid, mainly playing tennis when I was sort of between five and 12, really. And, oh, my goodness, my mother and my grandmother would constantly be reprimanding me for, you know, smashing a racket or belting a ball somewhere or behaving poorly. So I think you learn to put yourself outside the comfort zone and then you learn to cope with the emotions that go with being outside your comfort zone. And so I think there's there's a whole range of things that sort of tip into that that whole scenario. I've got a nephew, he's 11, and he is the most competitive person I have ever seen. And his mother and his grandmother are constantly trying to manage that. You got any advice for me? <laughs> I'll keep going. It will sink in eventually. I mean, I think I think the thing that did it for me was I had my racket put in the cupboard for a week and I wasn't allowed to touch it. That was an eye-opener. I also was made to ring up someone and apologise for my poor behaviour on tennis court one day. That was also embarrassing and humiliating. So there's, I think there was a few things that um, that the, my parents did that um, that sort of shocked me out of it. But it really was a good lesson that that's not acceptable. It took me a little while to get there, but once I got there, 
you know, I did try really hard to manage that emotional load that goes with being competitive and not winning is, you know, it's like someone cut your leg off. It's like it's, it's horrible, but it's part of life. And the more you play, the more you lose, the better you get at it. I want to talk through the player that takes the mark on the siren and goes back to kick the winning goal versus the player who takes the mark on the siren and you can almost feel it, the difference. You know, one of them is (laughs) Buddy Franklin who you just know is going to have the best time when he does kick it. On the other one, you can just feel his anxiety and the weight of expectation and you just know that that's going to be a real struggle for him or her. When you look at those two players... What do you see and how do you coach them? I think you can tell by their body language what they're thinking and that's important to recognise. So when, you know, the eyes are darting all over the place and, you know, the like just the behaviours that indicate that I'm not really sure what I should be doing here versus the, okay, I'm just going to, you can tell the people that have, I, I know exactly what I'm going to do. So to me that comes back to how have you prepared yourself for this moment? So... The kids that are in the backyard saying, you know, the siren's gone, I've got to kick this, or it's the last wicket, it's the last ball. It's it's like using your imagination to put yourself in those positions on a regular basis. And this is what coaches of sporting teams do. They push people and try and recreate that so that when it happens, you are somewhat in the present so that you can just go about executing the skill. So, People often say, what was it like playing in front of a massive crowd? I played in front of 70-odd thousand people in a World Cup in India in 1997. And I say to them, I didn't really take any notice of the crowd until such time as the game was just about done because you're trained to block that out. Even though it was such a bizarre experience, I didn't want to worry about the crowd. I needed to win the game. I needed to focus on what I was doing. So a lot of that comes down to your ability to either block stuff out or prepare with your imagination to make sure that when it comes that you're excited but calm rather than nervous and, you know, your your emotions are running wild. Do you apply that mindset to your corporate life today? I do and I find that it's contextual. So there's some things that I would be doing that I think I've done this before or I've done something like this before. What can I draw on to help me? Um, stay calm. And other times, you know, sometimes it's just really difficult and you've just got to sort of march in and you know you've not done this before. This is the first time and and you've just got to give it, give it your best shot. But, you know, making sure that it's not put, you know, you're not putting extra pressure on yourself. So there's a saying in sport that you should, you know, train like you're playing and play like you're training. So When you're training, you're putting pressure on yourself to try and make things as hard as possible, as complex and difficult. And then when you're playing, what you're trying to do is make things simple and and pretend it's not a game. It's just a a training session. You've just got to focus on what you've done before. So there's this dynamic that's going on around putting yourself in, um, you know, transporting yourself to situations so that you can handle the, the pressure, put it on in training and take it off during match time. So for the player that doesn't have that natural confidence and hasn't worked through the wild excitement of having the potential to, sh- to make the winning run, what advice do you have for them to kind of push through that pain barrier 
uh, and get themselves centred to concentrate on the on the work that needs to be done? You know, athletes do a lot of work thinking or imagining, you know, what good would look like. And I did this a few times when I was in the field and things were going pear-shaped and people were looking to me to say, like, well, what are we going to do? This is not going as planned. And my strategy was I need to elevate myself out of being on the field here and look at this as a third person looking in. The way I would frame it is what would the commentators be saying about what's happening now? What would the people on the TV be watching? And if I had nervousness or uncertainty or chewing my nails or losing it, that's not helpful to anyone. So constantly sort of projecting forward to say, what would I want me to be perceived mm. as? And that comes back to being calm, <laughs> clear. If you don't know, go go find out. Take your time to let things settle. But what you don't want to do is let people know that either you're rattled, you're nervous, you don't know what you're doing, or, or that something's sort of getting under your skin. And this art of bluffing is something that you learn to do very well on a cricket field because you're constantly trying to bluff your team that you know what's going on and the other team that you've got a plan against them. So I think it's really important to be able to keep yourself calm enough that you can then project what it is that you're wanting to project. Do you use the art of bluffing in other aspects of your life? Oh, absolutely. All the Fantastic. time. Fantastic. <laughs> It's if fake skill, it till you make it. It's um, the same concept, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, well, I think if, um, you know, you are what you think, what you are thinking comes out in a whole range of what you're saying, how you're um, holding yourself. So that confidence, when you're walking out in the middle to bat, you may be walking out to on a green wicket with a quick bowler with a new ball and you have to make them believe that you've got this, you've got this covered so that is a learnt skill from sport is to to be able to do that. And I think absolutely I do that in everyday life and particularly in tricky situations where I'm really starting to doubt or getting nervous about what's happening here. It's just switch into, okay, h- how, how should I be showing myself here? And, and off you go. I think if some of, your, some of the junior players starting out in their careers have that in spades because they've been, you know, they've been so talented since they were born and they've always assumed that they're going to, you know, play for Australia or play for the state or whatever. But it's really interesting when you watch their careers do that dip, you know, when they've made Mm. it, they're Australian player and then for whatever reason they just lose their touch. Mm. That is a really interesting phase for an elite athlete. Yeah, and the way I describe it is watching someone hang on to a cliff with their fingernails, like just their fingers, and they're hanging off the whole cliff. And they're trying to hang on, they're trying to hang on, and they're actually, the best thing for them to do is to let go, hit hit the bottom, and then start rebuilding, rebuilding themselves. Whilst they're holding there, they're not actually open to learning and changing. And so that knock that people get, and everyone gets it, everyone goes through a period of, hang on, this is not meant to happen to me. But you do need to let go in order to start the process of taking those learnings and rebuilding something because whilst you're stressed and hanging on and afraid, you're not getting better. Growing up in essentially a very masculine environment sport, even though you were a superstar of women's cricket, did you feel that sort of masculinity when you were around sport or were you immune to it because you were in a women's team? Uh, I think from a playing perspective, I was just reacting to the circumstances I was in. So it was probably a very different world to working inside sport where there primarily is 
you know, 20, 25 years ago, primarily male and still male dominated, but there's a lot more females in there now. So it wasn't unusual to be the only female in a meeting. So at times to get a point across or to get something through probably reverted to what would be considered to be more masculine approaches around being, whether it's decisive or pulling rank or, you know, using a story or something to to try and get your point across. But in the main, I think I've been relatively true to, to me and my style, but that probably has evolved as I've evolved as well. How have you evolved? What do you see today as good qualities or the necessary qualities of good leadership? I think um, care for people has moved from the back of the queue in terms of what people would talk, you know, 30, 40 years ago about leadership and what they talk about now. I think the care and empowerment of people is at the front of the queue, not the back of the queue. I think it's always been there and people that have been good leaders have always worried about others and cared for them. But I think society now has sort of pushed that up the queue a bit. I think being able to make decisions and communicate them clearly so that people can get on with a job so that you're not letting people whirl around in uncertainty if if they're actually wanting some certainty. So I think being able to, you know, weigh up a situation and and make a decision and, and then help people move with that, I think that's important. Being able to think about what's this going to look like in a couple of years or the next decade. So where is this industry going and what do I need to be, what, what's my role relative to everyone else's role so that we can play well together. I'm good friends with um, Major General Simone Wilkie who spoke about, you know, leadership in that you've got to know yourself, know your people, know your enemy and know your role. And that's just really stuck with me since, um, since I've heard that. So that's a really good description of what it is that you need to be contemplating as you're approaching a situation. Tell me a little bit more about the work you do today. So I've been spending, I spent a lot of time working at a system level on sport. So, you know, working with a federated model and trying to change either the the way kids played the game or, you know, the way we're preparing high-performance athletes or our national teams. And I wanted to get right back to working at an individual level, which is what I'm doing now. I'm trying to help female athletes make the most of the opportunities they have to lead, set them up for success and then, you know, empower them to then continue to lead beyond the playing field. So there's two elements of that. Do a really good job today in your role with your team, help them be as as good as they could possibly be. And then that I think then uh, allows the confidence to continue to, to lead in other parts of life, whether that's in sport, whether you end up coaching or administering or just in general life. It really doesn't matter what sporting code we talk about, the quality of the women coming through the elite ranks is um, something that's talked about a lot. Why do you think that's the case? I think two things have happened. One is that there's been pathways set up for young girls, which are more robust than they have been in the past. There's still work to do, but it's not unusual for a for a girl to be playing multiple sports at a young age, similar to what her brother would be playing. So I think exposure at a young age is one of the parts. I think the other part is there's so much more women's sport on television now, which has now got a profile, which has led to marketing campaigns. There's a whole lot more visibility of female athletes. And I think that's played a really important part to change kids' perception of, I could play this and I could 
actually make a living out of it or I could just play at a high level or I could coach or I could blah, blah, blah. So I think those two things have gone hand in hand to to create what we're seeing now and and I think there's still further growth to to occur. But there does seem to be a higher degree of competency, humility, capability, likability in our female athletes compared to the blokes who have been monocoddled and well-paid and revered forever. <laughs> like, what's that about? Oh, I, I just love working with people that have got two feet on the ground and they can see the bigger picture. And most of the female athletes I deal with, and a significant proportion of males as well, but most of the female athletes I work with have a very clear sense of, I want to be as good as I could possibly be. And I want to make sure that the girl coming behind me has a slightly easier path than what I did. And so they're all very attached to this concept of what what is the legacy and how we're building this movement. And I, I think that that's just a point in time because they can see the gains being made and it's really important to them that they play their part in that process. So I don't think that's quite the same around what males would be experiencing because males have been exposed and able to and, and access sport for for so long. So I, I just think it's a slightly different perspective because of the experiences people have had. I won't name the Australian female cricket star who at one of our events was asked about what her advice would be to her male colleagues in the Australian cricket team. And she said, don't be a dickhead. Mm. And it was a point where the entire sporting cricketing community was feeling pretty much the same thing. But it was just one of those moments where you kind of like, you know, they've had to fight so hard to get that recognition and to be considered equals to the men that they have that humility and strength. And, and you know, in Australia, we love the underdog, right? So the population's really gotten behind these players. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in some respects, they're playing really hard when they're on the field. And I, I'm speaking mainly about the Australian women's team here, but something can happen in a game and you will see a beaming smile. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the men's game. It, it does, but there is a sense of joy which is evident in women's sport, which I think is also anchored in competitiveness and will to win and effort and all that sort of stuff. But in the downtime, there's time for a, for a laugh or a smile. And I, I think the public attached to that because that's most people's experience with sport is that they get to have fun, they compete, they try hard. But at the end of the day, this is a pursuit. This is a, a hobby. And even if they're professional athletes earning a lot of money, I would be advocating for them still to appreciate that at the end of the day, this is a hobby and that that's why sport resonates with, with everyone because we've all had a chance to experience it. If you had a crystal ball, where do you think women's sport will be in 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a good question. 2023, if I look back to 2013, so if I look back first, there's no WBBL, there's no AFLW. I mean, there's women playing football and cricket, but it's different different sort of amount of effort resource going into making sure those comps are good. And now today we're having full competitions. They've both had seven or eight seasons, I think, and the athletes are starting, they're starting to get paid nicely, which is great. So I feel like that athlete payment piece will continue to sort of, that'll go exponential. I think that'll be significantly different in 10 years' time 
than what it is now. I don't know where it will be relative to the men, but it'll be significantly more than what the girls are playing for now. I think there'll be more opportunities for women, but those opportunities will be around the game, not necessarily on field. I think we'll see more female coaches, more female CEOs, more females just involved in sport. It's a lot of work going in to try and move that. I think within 10 years it needs to have moved. Otherwise, we need to ask ourselves some serious questions about our <laughs> our intent or effort. And I think the the relevance of female sport will continue to, to rise and the public will continue to back it and it'll be a, uh, a big earner for sports and, that, and that's why they're investing now in, in the women's games. My final question to you is, as someone who has led at every level, and, and as we started in this um, discussion, you've been a leader since you're in your early 20s. What advice do you have for young women starting out on their leadership journey? Find a critical friend that you can talk to honestly about what you're feeling and experiencing so that you can get some, you know, helpful feedback. Don't shy away from that. I don't think you need to listen to everyone that's got an opinion and everyone does have an opinion, but I think um, finding that one or two people that you can really trust and take take note of what they say, be yourself and yeah, get a simple plan and, and stick to it and then that's what you're getting feedback on from your, from your critical mate to, um, to help you sort of learn and grow. Belinda, absolute pleasure to connect with you today and to hear your leadership um, advice and insights Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time and best wishes with um, your latest venture, helping young women have the leadership experience that you had. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 